You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Team Guru Podcast. It is great to have your company. My name's David Frizzell, and when it comes to marketing, I have to admit I'm a little on the naive side. I know it's a huge industry, keeping many gainfully employed, But what really is marketing? How is it different to advertising? And most importantly, how is the world of marketing changing? To answer these questions and much more is the delightful Troy McKinna. Troy McKinna, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure, Troy. You know, I was just admitting to you before we hit record on this that despite my my work in management consulting and leadership and all the things that I do, my work with the podcast, I've had this podcast for years and uh, probably don't do a very good job of the marketing. I'm so naive when it comes to marketing. There are so many questions that I have for you about the basics of marketing. So you are one of these perfect guests that I get to bring onto the show and grill them for all the things I've ever wondered. So for our listeners, what we're going to do with Troy is we're going to haul him over the coals and suck all the, the knowledge out of him that he's developed over his 20 years career. We're going to learn about what marketing is and how it's changing and why it's changing and what marketers should do differently. But most importantly for us, we're going to ask Troy about how that's relevant for me and you and people who work in organizations, people who are founders of small businesses, people who sell their services as a sole trader. So that's where we're going to go with this. Does all that sound okay with you, Troy? That sounds great. Let's get into it. Great. All right. I'm going to hit you with the big question then, and you've done this in your book, so this will be an easy question for you. What on earth is marketing? It's one of these words we think we all have an understanding of, but I- I bet, as you say in your book, if you ask 10 people, even 10 informed people, you probably get 10 different answers. So what's the Troy McKenna definition of marketing? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, the most common thing you hear is we're the culinary in department and, uh, you know, there's, mm. we're out drinking lattes. That's not very flattering. No, it's not. Having lattes and chardonnays and uh, it's all sort of fluff. But, um, you know, if you really get into it, marketing at its essence is in my opinion is about building brands and i'm talking about brands more than just your brand name your logo or your your advertising campaign or tagline it's all the touch points that a customer will have with the company and that could be a call center so they call up and you know have a a shitty experience and you know that's going to really reflect on what they think about the brand you know it can be the product they buy it can be the service the experience what happens when they get at home and open up the box it really the, the real value of marketing is building memories and associations about your business and brand in a customer's mind. And, you know, I'll give you a really good example. There's thousands of beer brands around the world. They're all made with the four same ingredients, water, malt, hops, and yeast. If you try and blind taste test them- How different can it get? Yeah, exactly. A lot of them pretty much taste the same, but they've done an amazing job at building brands. And, you know, the real value, as I said, sits in the customer's mind. So, if you're giving you a scenario, you know, it's a it's middle of summer, which is sort of hard to think about right now, but it's middle of summer. It's a stinking hot day. Your mates call you up after work and say, we're hitting the beach, watch the sunset, have a swim. Can you go to the bottle shop and get us a case of beer? And chances are you're walking into the bottle shop with a few brands in your mind. On average, it's about two or three. There's a pretty good chance one of those brands is Corona. 
And what Corona have done is built this association with that moment. Summer. Mates, mates, yeah. summer, the beach, you know, watching the surf. Yeah. And so that's the value of it. And that's why one of Corona is one of the biggest bottled brands in Australia because they've built that connection in customers' minds. And so it's this it's a difficult thing for businesses because it's an intangible, it's hard to sort of touch. But it's you know, in my opinion, it's the most valuable thing. And then all the work I've done, it's the one thing that sets apart companies that are growing really rapidly and, and companies that aren't. Uh, you know, but if you bring it right back to its basics, marketing is about building brands. You made a really good point in your book that sometimes large organizations or organizations of any, of any size big enough to have a marketing guy or a marketing department, it can actually be a bad thing because brand is the business. And And the first example you gave was, well, you could be calling the call center attached to a company and your experience there will give you an experience that tells you about the brand. But the people at the call company, chances are they don't think of themselves as brand ambassadors. They think the marketing guys do that. So I'm going to leave marketing, I'm going to leave brand to them and I just do the call bit. But in reality, they are as much a brand ambassador as any other part of the organization. Yeah, definitely. Every, As I said, anyone that touches what gets delivered to the customer is is a part of building that brand. And that could be you know, the supply chain and the quality they deliver. That could be the you know, as I said, the you know how it's sold in store. It could be the person that's merchandising it and putting it on a display. It could be the person in finance that's helping setting the price. It's it's sort of all of those aspects wrapped up, and that's what I love about the brand. It's that central part. It connects the business and the customers. It connects supply chain with the sales and demand team. It, you know, and ultimately it it sort of determines what price you can charge and therefore what the shape of your P&L looks like. So, it, it has this sort of all-encompassing influence on the business. It takes a village to raise a child and it takes a business to build a brand. So, there you go. I did read a good amount of your book, Troy. Yeah, great. Now, <laughs> am I quoting you or is that someone else? Uh, no, no, no. That was, that was out of the book. That's a quote from me. That's good. Brilliant. I yeah. like it. So, Troy, one of the things about your story that I read in your book was that you had one of the head honcho jobs for marketing in Mars, Mars Bars. And I thought, what kind of a job is that? You don't even need to market Mars Bars. I mean, everyone knows what a Mars Bar is. Everyone wants too many Mars Bars. What on earth could you possibly do when it comes to marketing Mars? And you kind of changed my mind a little bit as I read the book and and you you told some pretty pretty quick stories about how complex it is and how much goes on. But I am interested in the difference between having a job like that at Mars in this really well established brand that naive me that that me of a few hours ago before I started reading your book thought, hey, you just roll that ball down the hill and people buy Mars bars. In fact, the problem is buying too many Mars bars compared to the idea of creating a new brand, getting something up and running from from the ground up, from zero knowledge to becoming a household name. Tell us about the difference between those type of roles. Yeah. So, marketing something like Mars is actually, it is easy and it's extremely difficult. And part of it is, you know, you've got, when I was looking after it, it had about a 40-year legacy and it had been around a long time. And you know, there was lots of history. And so, what I was just a custodian of the brand for a year or two. And so, you know, there's all these people before me, there's all this history before me. And since I've been on it, there's all these people after me and all these people, you know, looking after the brand. So, really, you're just sort of looking after it for a period of time. 
And, you know, as I touched on at the start, branding is about building memories and associations in people's minds. And so, the, you know, if you think about WordPress Play, everyone, you know, Mars Day helps you WordPress Absolutely. Play. That is Mars Day. That is so ingrained. You know, you think about Burned the- Burned in my brain. Exactly. You think about the logo and, you know, the colors and the icon and the, the, the font that's used. You know, it's iconic. And people only need to see a slither of that brand name to know exactly what it is. Mm. So, there's a lot of things you can't really touch. You can't really go yeah. and go, all of a sudden, we're going to- Change it to purple packaging, and you know, totally change it. You <laughs> Make know, it look like Milky Way. Yeah, exactly. Change the fonts or whatever. So there's all these things you've got to sort of set in place. But at the same time, mm. brands, you know, everyone knows it, but it's easy to forget about it. And when I say that, it's like if you're walking into a shop today, chances are that it just needs a bit more of a nudge to really come into your sort of sub uh, into your conscious to to go and grab one. And so that's the job is basically how do you sort of remind people how great a Mars bar is, you know, a lot of people have had them, but it's, you know, the real growth in that brand comes from getting those people that have it once a year, just to have it twice a year or someone that hasn't had it for a couple of years yeah. to have it. And so, you basically, that's yeah. your job is trying to nudge people over the line. And so, you've got to take all this legacy that's there with the brand, but you've got to reinvent it with a bit of a twist to make it a bit more exciting. You know, so, how do you use WordPress Play as a platform and do something with it that's a bit you know, it's a bit novel and cuts through a bit more because, as I said, it's easy to forget about it. If you think about starting a brand, a new brand from scratch, you know, you can do it in a really modern way. You can do it fit for exactly, you know, today's times. You can change the recipe. You know, you can develop a recipe that suits right now and you've got a blank slate. And so, you've got a lot of things that you can influence and sort of work on. And so, it's, you know, it's a different game, definitely. You know, trying to get growth out of a 40-year brand is difficult versus trying to get growth off out of a startup. But that's the, that's the challenge of every any brand custodian is every single company has the same universal goal. It's got to grow. And so, getting growth in something mature is, is harder, but you've got lots of platform to build that from. And in the marketing world, is is that a thing? Do you kind of decide that you like to play the Mars game and and be the the holder or the keeper of that brand and have very few parameters or very few levers to pull? Or do you choose that, hey, I like to be a new brand guy and get something up and running? Is that a kind of a decision you make? Like a golfer decides he prefers Lynx golf, golf courses as opposed to the resort courses in the US? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you know, I've hired a lot of marketers over the years. And to be honest, the best marketers have done a bit of everything. You know, there's a, there's yeah. a, there's a, you know, there's a skill that comes with starting something from scratch. There's equally a, a different skill set, but a complementary skill set to getting growth out of something that's been around a long time. And equally, the other, the hardest thing is is sort of picking up a brand that's had its best days behind it and trying to invigorate yeah. that. And you know, in the book, I talk about the Holden Commodore. Holden Commodore. I was about to say it's a great story. Yeah, classic, icon- terrible story for Holden. No, exactly, a classic, iconic brand. You know, 20 years ago, even longer than that, it was the number one brand in Australia. They'd sell about 90,000 cars in a year and it was untouchable. It was number one by a long stretch. In 1998, it was number yeah, one. Yeah, 1998. And then since then, it's had this steady decline. In the mm. latest year, it's about to sell 10% of that. And to be honest, it's sort of on its way out off Australian roads and is likely to disappear. But what happened was the customers started to change. You know, what we define yeah. as a large car sort of changed. You know, anyone that's got kids uh, know 
you know, trying to pack the car with the kids and the pram and the bikes and the dog and everything, yeah. you know, a Holden Commodore is not big enough for you. So that's where the SUV market came in. You know, Commodores used to be really big with tradies, but, you know, tradies these days have sort of got a bit more cash in their pockets. They want something bigger, a bit more, you know, you know, muscle car, I guess, if you like. And that's sort of the big utes, are sort of some of the best-selling cars these days. But, you know, I, yeah. I had a good chat with, um, you know, a CMO that came in to try and fix the brand and turn it around. And it, we were talking about if you want to build a new car, it's about a five-year cycle. So, if you want to have mm. something on the road this year, you had to start development five years ago. But the problem is yeah. you have a lot of marketers come in and they're only there for a couple of years. So, to see a project through- so no one's playing the long game. No one's playing the long game at all. And then just lots of things didn't change. You know, and it, it's every company's guilty of this. It gets really short-term focus. Let's just hit our number this year, this quarter, this 12 months, whatever that is. And then they were doing things, sales promotions, et cetera, just to sort of hit this sales number. And they might have had okay years year on year, but the long-term underlying growth was declining. You know, you think about it, sold by you know, car sales. Anyone's bought a new car recently just hates the process. Car salesmen are the least trusted profession in Australia, which I... I sort of found in my research. And so, you know, the whole experience, it's an outdated car. It hasn't moved with the times, you know, and the product sort of hasn't kept up. The marketing hasn't kept up. It did a lot of, you know, about V8 supercars and and motor racing and stuff, which is just not that, you know, relevant for a lot of families and, you know, what they're looking for. So, you know, that's that's a sort of great example. If you don't keep your eye on the ball, play the long game, and keep invigorating the brand, it, it just declines. But what can you do about that? I mean, the, you, you you told the story well in your book. Uh, you know, 1998 was the peak of the Commodore after coming into the market in 78. And at some point, the market opened up to overseas cars, and then people started getting really into, the, into SUVs. You know, my last two family cars have been SUVs, small and, and now a large one. I've got three kids. So you spoke to me perfectly as you described that in the book. And there is nothing that Commodore could have ever done to stay relevant to my life. I mean, I moved on. I moved with the times as as has everyone else that I know. So does it ever get to the point with something like Commodore as a brand where you just say, hey, it was great. It made us a whole bunch of money, but let's not retire a season too late. Let's pull the pin while we're still playing well and and not have an embarrassing last season because that's kind of what's happening with a brand like Commodore and there's nothing they could have done to stop it. The world has moved past Commodores. Yeah, true. I mean, it definitely was, it would have been a tough gig. If you looked at it, it started as a sedan and then moved in a station wagon and, had a, and you could get a Commodore Ute. So, arguably, there could have been things that could have done it in evolving its brand. You know, mm. But, you know, it's a, it's a strategic decision. Do you just park it and go, it's had its day, let's go and find something else? You know, but that's equally as hard to sort of start something from scratch and they haven't done that and they haven't been able to find that next uh, growth platform for them. So, you know, you know, every company has the same thing. We, you know, we were, I was working on Schweppes, which is a 230-year-old brand. It's like, you know, it's tough to keep finding that new growth, but that's the job of the, the marketer and the person that's looking after the brand is how do you invigorate that? Is it, you know, are you solving the right customer problem? Are you solving, you know, have you got the right, the latest technology to deliver? Are you communicating it the right way? Are you selling it in the right way? So, they're all the things you need to really think about. Hey, you you mentioned Sweps there. You don't look back fondly on your time as a marketer in Sweps. Oh, look, I, I had a great experience there and there's some amazing brands to work on. 
I guess what I struggled with as a marketer was that it was, you know, at one point there were 14 factories around Australia and it was really a supply chain-led business and they were making short-term decisions, you know, around the supply chain and sort of sales volume. And, you know, we would – every year was the same. Uh, financial year was a calendar year. Christmas is the biggest time to sell drinks in the whole year. So, we sort of finished financial year and, and the sort of Christmas period all at the same time. And what would happen was that we'd, you'd be short on your sales target. And so, marketing investment for future years would get cut. Sales would just get you know pushed out into the, into the boxes of product would get pushed out into the market. And it was like this sort of, you know, the analogy I use is that sort of you party really hard on a Saturday night, not really thinking about Sunday morning and you wake up with a hangover. And, and that's what it was like. It was sort of, you know, really do whatever you can to hit this year's number and get the result. And then we'll worry about next year when it comes. But, you know, there's this underlying trend. You could see it in when I was there in the P&L. It was, you know, less marketing investment every year, you know, much more spent into sales promotions like price discounts and, you know, the brand health, all the metrics were sort of declining over time. And there were lots of brands that were getting left behind like Cotty's Cordial and, you know, Spring Valley Juice. And, you know, unfortunately, it's just one of those things when you've got a portfolio that big is, you can't look after all of them and you can't sort of invigorate them. But, um, you know, I think part of the reason why I wrote Brand Hustle was really trying to distinguish what does a good company do like a Mars and build its brands has amazing P&L because of that investment long term versus a company like Schweppes, which has sort of traded its brands more. And, you know, I think most people in that business would be, you know, a bit unaware of what's really going on with the brand health over the long term. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. I'm about to ask you what has fundamentally changed in the marketing game during your 20 years in the industry, but I'm going to call you on something. You you asked me before we hit record if I was going to quote you out of page numbers in the book and and ask you specific questions. I said no, but it was a big lie. I am, and I only just realized I am. You talked about in your time at uh, Mars, and I really like this, you, you talked about bringing back the highly successful one in six free Mars bars promotions. I love that. I remember that. I'm a bit of a chocoholic. You did a, a, a couple of clever things uh, in this job where I thought you could have just sit on it for your year and collect your salary, but you did all these things. One of them, and this is what I'm calling you on, was to re-engineer pack sizes to counteract increasing cocoa prices. Now, I know as a consumer, what you're saying there is you made the Mars bar smaller. Yeah, definitely. And again, every every marketer that is, is, has full responsibility for a P&L has gone through this experience. At the time, cocoa prices were, it's a global commodity. It was going up at about 15%. So, the decision you have is, if you keep the Mars bar the same size and charge 15, 20% more to offset those prices, or do you keep pricing about the same and make the, the product smaller? And, you know, to be honest, pricing is, you know, a lot of people make their decision on the, on the price. And, you know, we did a lot of trade-offs around that and we were actually better off. The customer was going to be buying more, you know, ultimately and, and sort of spending more with us if we shrunk the bar a little bit and, you know, kept the pricing more, you know, at a similar point. We did lots of other things to try and cut costs. And you know, innovative things to shave you know costs out of the P and L, but you know, it's one of those decisions. And you see it in every every category: prices or costs 
often go higher on uh, raise quicker than you can charge the price. But yeah, I'm I'm guilty of making the Mars bar smaller. You made the Mars bar smaller. You individually. Troy McKinnon made the Mars bar smaller. Hey, do you get a lot of backlash from that? Is there a bunch of numpties out there who know exactly how many grams their Mars bar should be and and they get upset and write to the company and all of that kind of stuff? Yeah, you definitely you, you get a lot of that. You know, but that's yeah. sort of uh, that's more noise. You, than- you obviously take that into the into the decision. Yeah, definitely. It's you know every company's as I said, every company that's had a you know is dealing with cost in you know inflationary pressure, pressures has done that, and it often it happens over a couple of stages as well. You know, your box of cornflakes is smaller a couple of times over the last ten or twenty yeah. years. You know, lots of things that have done that. Uh, so you do, you definitely take it into account, but um, you know, ultimately you you're making business decisions. But you can't give away the product for nothing. It's you know they're not charities; they're, they're businesses and. Uh, there to sort of make their money and sort of look after their shareholders. All right. Well, let's get let's get serious about uh, understanding marketing in 2019 a little bit better. Tell us, Troy, how has the marketing game changed in your time in the industry? What are the things that that you have noticed? If, if you were to go back and, and visit 20 years ago and compare it to what you do now and, and what happens in the industry, what are the big ticket items? The biggest thing is, is I guess, the pace and it's it's – the pace of business in general, and it's you know it's probably had a, a huge impact on marketing. And I guess what I what I mean by that is business is just getting faster. You know, when I started marketing, you know, most companies would sit down and most marketers would sit down and they'd write a three year strategic plan. Here's where we're going for the long term. You know, here's our product innovation pipeline, and you would, you were mostly competing against other big companies. And so, most industries, there'd be two or three big companies and you'd all sort of be on the same timeline, same sort of constraints around speed speed to market, et cetera. And, you know, you, you, had a bit of, you had a bit of time up your sleeves to do things strategically and well. And, you know, for example, you might make a, a TV advertising campaign and some of those could take 12 months to make. So, you could be planning it, working through the, with the ad agency, producing it, buying the media, getting it to market. And that could be a 12-month cycle. I guess what's changed now is you're not just – big companies aren't just competing against other big companies. They're competing against everyone. You know, they're competing against someone in his his garage that's just thought, I've got a great idea. I'm going to go and produce it. They're competing against global companies and they're getting disrupted. And, you know, I think, again – Lots of industries were pretty stable 20 years ago, and so you weren't dealing with lots of things, to, you know, disruptions. Nowadays, you're sort of dealing with customers of changing, and their needs are changing. Technology is changing, so the you know, the best solution today is a lot different to what it was 10 or 20 years ago. Things are getting outdated. Yeah. Sales channels are getting disrupted. You know, you can now again, you know, you can sell stuff on Instagram and Facebook, whereas 10 or 20 years ago, you basically was mostly through bricks and mortar stores. So, all of that's getting disrupted and how you communicate is changing. There's this sort of 24-7 media cycle. There's social media, which anyone can, if you've got a great message and a great story, can get it out to the market. And so, what's changed is you can't just sit around now and plan for the next three years. You've probably got to plan for the next three months. And so, there's a lot more intensity to that, but not a lot of the business constraints haven't really changed. It's still you know, it takes five years to make a new car or whatever it may be. Yeah. So you've still got all those sort of legacy constraints you're dealing with. So, um, you know, I think 
the marketing jobs got a lot more complex. You know, again, sort of we aren't sitting around or watching TV with the family on a Sunday night. The TV might be on, but there might be the iPad going and a you know a phone going, and so you're getting there's lots of ways to communicate with people. You know, podcasts went around, so there's you know there are all these new mediums, and so it's just a lot more complex. You, you've got to, I guess, build expertise in a much broader area these days to communicate to your customers. Yeah, so gone are the times I remember going to school on a Monday morning or any morning, and you could talk to everyone at the port racks about the show that everyone watched last night because there were only three or four options. And if there was a standout show, everyone watched the same one. You just can't have those conversations now anymore because, as you say, everyone's on different devices. There are so many different channels to hit. But that's a bit of a side point. The The main message there was 20 years ago, you could plan a campaign and take 12 months to put it all together and know that your message in 12 months' time, once you've bought the the TV time and film the commercials and done all the graphic design, your message was still going to be relevant. But now in this fast changing world and, and the fact that we're competing not just with other large organizations, we're competing with startups and products are changing and industries are being disruptive, disrupted, you can't take 12 months to do anything anymore. You need to be much faster, much more agile. Yeah, yeah. You talk a lot in your book and you've mentioned it today, tonight in our conversation, that Building a brand is a long-term game, but unfortunately, organizations are, are looking, looking at the bottom line today. Are the execs going to get their bonuses at the end of this financial year? So that's, let's hit our numbers now and let's not worry about those things that will convert into brand loyalty in two and three and four years' time. When you think about that short-termism and the short-termism that you almost need to have as, as a marketer because of disrupted markets and channels, do the two clash or do they kind of blend quite nicely? Is that short-termism at the board level just matched by what you need to be as a marketer? I think what it's doing is creating a pressure to find new ways to do things or smarter ways to do things or, you know, you know, as a, as a sort of title of the book, Brand Hustle, it's about finding those hustle, you know, ways to hustle and do things quicker you know, there's a really great piece of science work that a couple of UK scientists have done around building brands and, you know, they look at short-term mechanics like, you know, a half price at your supermarket or a giveaway, buy this, we'll give you something free. And what they found is you can get an instant result and if you invest a dollar, you get much more than a dollar back. But as soon as that promotion's finished, you back go back to your baseline sale and, you know, there's no long-term growth to it. Versus if you invest a dollar in long-term advertising campaign or brand building exercise, you might not see that dollar straight back. And in some cases, you won't actually see it back in that first 12 months, but it keeps paying for the next two to three years and you get a much more longer-term growth and compounding impact of that. And I think most companies have switched to just doing all the promotional stuff because everyone's just worried about this 12 months. I think the real key is how do you find ways to grow and do strategic things that can be done quick? And so, you know, for example, it might be the way you do your product innovation. How are you doing product innovation that's, that's sort of building the brand and sort of creates that hype and creates that sort of buzz in the market? How are you putting your product in, in a sales experience, which is, is building that? And, you know, you know, it's easy to sort of, again, go back to a supermarket, sell something at half price and you can sell lots of volume that week, but it's not the best shopping experience. You know, if you use wine as an example, 
you know, you can go to amazing bars or you can go to the, the vineyard and the cellar door and, and buy it, listen to the winemaker, get to walk through the vineyard. Amazing experience, helps build the brand, you know, versus that, you know, buying it cheap at a, at a supermarket or, a, you know, the bottle shop. And so, it's, it's sort of finding those sales channels that can really help you build the brand. And it's about communicating, as we talked about, in a way that's it's fast paced and moving a lot quicker. And hopefully, you've got to find creative ideas that are, get a bit more buzz and sort of PR value, I guess, you know, is a great example. You know, Vegemite have done a great example in the last week where they placed an ad in the UK having a crack at the uh, UK. You know, the British won't be able to handle the Vegemite because it's too tough, uh, too strong a flavor for them. And then Marmite- then- Taunting them into buying it. Yeah, exactly. And then Marmite the next day <laughs> responded and then Ve- Vegemite responded a day later. And so, the Marmite- Oh, that's great. You know, Marmite marketing person's woken up one morning and seen that in the paper and they've had to do something within Just a day. Done something. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, it creates this, you know, great PR value. So, it's about finding, I guess, you have to be more creative than you, you used to be. Uh, you have to, you know, your ideas have got to travel a lot quicker and a lot faster. And so- you know, it's, I guess it's putting more pressure on that. You know, one of the brands I talked to in the book is Four Pillars Gin, and I think those guys have done an amazing job at building something fast by being really strategic. They're really clear where they're heading for the long term. You know, the brands all around celebrating that sort of contemporary Australian cuisine and, and sort of food and, and beverage sort of market. It's not stuffy London gin. It's a bit more, you know, really great quality. But as they talk about, you know, you can go and get the best coffee, but the guy will be serving it in, you know, in bare feet and, you know, in board shorts. You know, it's this sort of contradiction. And so, what they've done is they've done product innovation that creates this buzz. So, the Bloody Shiraz Gin, for example, is a great example. Really Australian, creates a lot of hype. You know, they, they seeped um, Christmas puddings in, in gin at Christmas, Christmas time. And so, they've got something to talk about. So, they have this amazing product that fits with this, you know, this sort of tension with an Australian food and food and beverage cuisine and then they sell it in the best bars and clubs and you know so a great example here in Melbourne is they partnered with the ESPY. The ESPY is a sort of iconic pub known for its it used to be known for its like sticky carpet. You go to like any front bar in any pub around Australia and it's got sticky carpet. You know you couldn't see it. Lovely. Yeah you couldn't see a British gin the London gin doing this in a million years but they've called their ESPY version the sticky carpet gin and so they've got this product they work with the right retail partners and the bars and clubs to do that and then they just have built these relationships with the best editors and journalists and and social media so when they do something like sticky gin or shiraz bloody shiraz everyone knows about it really quickly and so a lot of that's happening really fast but it's all strategically building blocks to to a longer term vision of where they're taking the brand all right you've done a fantastic job at educating me on marketing and helping me understand a lot more about building a brand and and the changes that are happening in your industry. It's fascinating stuff. Let's leave the listeners now, Troy, with the the four foundations or the key foundations for growth in your mind. That will help us walk away with these four principles that are really important in modern marketing. Can you talk us through each of those four? Yeah, I'll talk through the four and then I'll I'll use a sort of brand as an example of something that's sort of as you walk through them. But basically, there's four steps and they build them on, upon each other. So, you really want to start at step one and sort of take it from there. But the first step is really about finding customer problem to solve. And so, what you've got to be really clear with is you go to work, your boss is not your line manager or the CEO or the shareholders. Your boss is the 
is the customer that's going to pay your dollar for your product. And so they people pay brands to solve problems for them. And so what you want to identify is is an insight that underpins your brand. And so this is about what's the need they have, but what stops them getting achieving that need. And so I'll use an example, you know, a startup brand I'm involved in at the moment, it's called Calm and Stormy, it's sparkling and, and still mineral water product. You know, but this has sort of come out of my days at Schweppes. You know, what's changing is the customer need. So everyone still gets thirsty, has a need for water, want to be healthier. But what's changed in the packaged market is that people don't want to buy plastic anymore. You know, you can get a, you know, every bit of plastic that's ever been made is still still exists, and you know, not much of it gets recycled. So plastic and and that environmental aspects becoming a real tension point. So it's like I still need to be refreshed. Still need something convenient, but how do I get it? And so it doesn't have that environmental baggage and, and sort of impact. impact. Mm-hmm. And so that's the sort of insight, you know, as a building block for the brand. The next step is building solutions that solve that problem. Hang on, before, before you move on to that, and this is a serious question, I'm not being facetious here, but when you're thinking, say, that, 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 that stormy and calm, I, I love that. My need as a consumer is to feel like I'm not destroying the environment with my plastic bottles of water, that's my need that you're scratching there. What's the need for selling a Mars bar? And, you know, because there is no need. I know as a consumer, I don't need, I'll never need a Mars bar. Every now and then I might crumble and give in and give myself a treat. So how do you approach that problem when you're selling something like a Mars bar? Yeah, so those, need, yeah, those needs can be functional, that can be emotional, that can be social. So Mars is more of an emotional need. I just want to treat myself. I want to feel good. I want to, um, you know, have, you know, and that's what really the Mars brand is tapping into. You've been working hard. You, you know, you're out there exercising or whatever it is, and it's a reward. So it's, you know, it's probably more of an emotional thing. People do buy them because they're hungry or they, it's three o'clock in the afternoon and they need to pick me up. But you know, on the whole, it's more of a, it's selling an emotional need. You know, it's like a diamond. Yeah. No one really needs a diamond, you know, as a yeah. you know, as a wedding ring. But it's uh, they sell because it's an emotional. You know, it's sort of held held Attachment up on this tra- yeah, tradition. Yeah, mm. yeah. And so that you know, as I said, those could be functional social needs. You know, how do I have a great time with my mates? Could be more of a, an emotional need. And so, in in the case of Calm and Stormy, we're selling more of a functional need around yeah. that. And so, the good, st- good, great answer. So, step two is around solutions. So, how do you develop solutions that solve that problem? And this is really talking about features and benefits. And so, the benefits really what customers are buying and the features are sort of what gives them confidence that your benefit's better than anyone else. And so, I guess it's, you know, it's sort of pinpointing what's the sort of key tangible thing, feature or attribute that makes your brand and product different to what else is on the market. And so once you've got that, it's then asking the question of so what, so what for the customer, and that takes you up to a, a functional benefit. And then you can even go further and say, well, so what it does that for me functionally? What does it deliver for me emotionally? And you know, and again, you can go down and saying, here's the emotional benefit: Mars makes you feel great because it's got this really great tasting product. It's got to give you a sugar hit, you know, all these little things. You know, and the, the attributes are it's nougat, caramel, and chocolate, and so that that ladders up. You know, as I as I said, the calm and stormy example of that is we source our water from a dormant volcano. Now you go, well, what the hell does that mean to me? 
Well, the benefit of that is it actually picks up a really nice mineral content. So there's uh, there's some mineral mineral benefit to that, and it's sort of more revitalizing for the body. And as I said, the other part to that is packaging. We can it in uh, aluminium cans. Cans are the most sustainable format. I've got 70% recycled content in the cans, but they're much more valuable as a commodity afterwards. So they're much more likely to get recycled uh, and they don't degrade. So a can can be turned into another can within six weeks and back on the shelf. So it's the most sustainable format versus plastic, which you know it degrades as, it, as you recycle it. A lot of it doesn't get recycled just because it's a, it's a cheap commodity. So that's the the second step is really how do you develop a solution? And the key part there is how do you do it in a way that's really single-minded and easy to get? Because people are so busy and I guess that's the challenge yeah, of marketing. They don't have to think about it. They don't have to think about it and they need something really quick that they yeah. can respond to. The next step is is how do you sell experiences? And so I touched on this before with the, the vineyard example, but the more uh, you can wrap around that sales experience and the consumption experience, the more memorable it's going to be. So if you can engage more senses, you know, it's going to be more memorable. So, you know, again, I use the example in the, any retail market, you can have, you know, the real the wheelers and dealers, the guys that just sell stuff cheap. You know, you walk in and they're just screaming at you, this is the lowest price. The experience is pretty yeah. crappy, but you know you're getting a good deal. Versus yeah. you walk into, you know, the best bar or restaurant, you walk into a brand like Aesop as a household sort of, you know, soaps and, and shampoos and stuff. You know, you walk in and they give you a green tea and the music's great and the place has been designed by an interior architect and everyone's different and, you know, the amazing ingredients and all that sort of stuff. So, they've wrapped much more around that experience than, than just, you know, uh, something cheap. And so, again, using the Carmen Stormy as the example, we've been really deliberate where we sell it. You can sell water or you can buy water pretty much everywhere in Australia. We've been selective to not talk to Coles and Woolworths because they just want to sell it cheap. We talk to the best cafes and healthiest food outlets and, you know, the people that are more conscious of, you know, sustainable offer. So, you know, for example, we've got a marquee account up at Falls Creek because, you know, obviously the, the snowfields are very conscious about the environment or, you know, we've got the best place in Torquay for seafood because they're, again, they're really conscious of plastic in the ocean. So, those experiences help us build the brand as a placement placement tool. And the last piece is around how do you build memories? You know, as I used the Corona example at the start, uh, mm, those memories, yeah, it's instantaneous. And so, most purchasing decisions happen in a split second. And, you know, there's a, there's a stat that um, we make about 35,000 decisions, 35, decisions in a day and 97% of those are unconscious and, and sort of automated. And so, the trick of building a brand is, is showing that your brand comes to mind faster than anyone else in the market. And this is about building memory. So, how do you talk them in, in a way that is engaging and they respond to? You know, uh, the brain is sort of hardwired to listen to certain stories. And I, and I, I touch on this in the book around archetypes. And so, we, we've all know the hero's journey or the lover or the jester. And so, brands sort of it, it can encompass these archetypes that help communicate and, you know, talk to people Again, we're sort of exposed to up to 5,000 messages in a day. You know, even on this podcast, we've talked about a handful of brands. I've talked about my book. You know, there's probably about now an interjection around what Team Guru can offer. You know, there's all these messages that are coming through to people. But the reality is most of them are forgotten. And, you know, so the key thing is how do you cut through 
So you've got to have a message that really stands out and you've got to build a platform that doesn't in a way that you consistently build it. So I use the example again of Carmen Stormy. You know, we have this sort of more of an out, outlaw approach to it. We're trying to take in a rebellious, you know, approach to this bottled water market that's a billion dollar category. It's been around for 20 odd years or more that everyone sells plastic uh, water in plastic bottles because it's cheap and the industry loves that. We're trying to disrupt that and, you know, bring something to the market that, uh, you know, as I said, disrupts that, you know, from everything we call it calm and stormy, you know, st- water's got this sort of you know, disruptive, you know, destructive aspect to it. Here on the, you know, Melbourne on the bay the other day, the storm was so big it washed away half of the Frankston Pier. So water's got this really powerful aspect to it. So we tap into that. You know, our key message is we want Australia to be the first country in the world to stop selling plastic water bottles. And so that's a, you know, it's a sort of big message. We're taking a big stand on that. Really clear what we stand for. Really clear what we uh, what we stand against, and how we build that as well. We're using Instagram as a as a platform for us. It's a visual. It's a very visual medium for us. You know, our packaging. We've taken a lot of effort into getting something that looks great, and you know, again, it's disruptive in that market. So the visuals help with that. And so you know, going back the whole way, it's those four steps all inter intersect and and work together to help us to build the brand. But I think that's for any any brand, I talked to lots of brands when I was writing the book, from the Holden Commodore to Four Pillars Gin to Oakley to you know Nike and their you know their entry into skateboarding. Every brand that's successful has those four aspects. They solve a customer problem. They develop design a solution that solves that problem. They sell experiences and they they get to, they find a way to market that is uh, really unique and a great experience. And they've all found a platform, their voice, their message to get their, their brand out into the marketplace. You just did my job for me, Troy. I was about to give a wrap-up of all four, and there you are doing it for me. I love it. Look, as you were talking about that embedding memories, I was thinking about a Coca-Cola ad that's probably 20 years old. I'm, I'm thinking about a young people on a beach with massive beach balls. They're rolling around in their bikinis and board shorts, and it has this – it's trying to tell me that as I should associate – Coke with good-looking people having lots of fun in the sun and associate that with any like memories that I have. Coke don't use kind of midnight gamers to advertise their product because that's not a memory that they want us to create. They're really powerful images and some of those those best brands give us those pictures that, that last years and years and decades. It's, it's really quite amazing. Yeah, and Coke's a great example having, you know, looked after Pepsi we were trying to take on Coke and you're in Australia, Australians buy four times as many Cokes as they do Pepsi. And part of that is exactly mm. what you've just touched on. They've been amazing at building memories. But there's, it's actually really complex the way they've done it because there's about a dozen key needs while you buy a, a soft drink and they've built strong memories in all of those. So, one of them, for example, is fast food. So, if you go to McDonald's and you get a burger and fries – What's the brand that comes to mind? Coke have been there forever yeah. and they've built that. Yeah. If you go to the bar and get a soft drink with a, a mixed drink, so if I said, go and get me a bourbon yeah. and something, you're not saying, can you get yeah. me a bourbon, bourbon and, and Pepsi? Coke. You're saying, get me a bourbon Coke. No, it's incredible. Um, yeah. You know, Christmas time is a huge occasion for buying soft drinks. They've done the Santa yeah. Claus, you know. So if, that, if, And absolutely, they did that in the late 70s, early 80s. I still remember it from when I was a kid and it still works. Yeah, definitely. And so I used the Corona example before, but Coke have probably got half a dozen key things that mm. in that buying moment, 
they're the first to come to mind. Much quicker than Pepsi yeah. because Pepsi just haven't been as strong at that in Australia as Coke. And it's about consistency. Yeah. They've done it, like you say, it's, you know, it's not just one-off campaign. All it's, of my it's, life, yeah, at least. Yeah, yeah, it's years and decades of doing the same thing and doing it strategically around what are all those moments to build. Look, Troy, it's absolutely fascinating stuff. I could talk to you forever, but we have run out of time. So thank you so much. Thanks for coming on and telling me all about marketing. No worries. Well, thank you for having me. Hope you've got something out of it. And that was Troy McKinna. I hope you got as much from our chat as I did. I feel well informed about the world of marketing and the changes that have gripped it over the past few years. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Troy on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.